welcome back to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is not Gast Hossein, it's Caitlin Bishop. I'm a campaigns officer here at Privacy International and normally the co-host of this podcast. But Gast is on holiday and hopefully having a lovely time. I'm here with Eva Brundamonte, a senior researcher at PI, and today we're talking about the surveillance of benefits recipients in the UK. So Eva, we recently released a wrote, released, did all the stuff for a report on the surveillance practices of the UK's Department of Work and Pensions, which involved reading through an almost 1,000 page document. How was that? It was a great read. Yeah, it was a document that's 995 pages that had been released back in 2019, actually, by the DWP, so the Department of Work and Pension, which is the ministry in the UK that's in charge of delivering pensions, but also delivering benefits. So if you're disabled, if you can't work for any reason, if you know, you're a single mom, you might be able to get benefits from them. And this document they had released was a guide on how to surveil people. And we know from previous media reports that it was these practices in place of surveilling benefits claimants to ensure that what they claim is true. So if they claim to be disabled, that they are actually disabled. If they claim to not be able to work, that they are actually not working. And if they claim to be a single mom, that they are indeed single, which is uh, a very problematic thing to have to surveil. So we knew that the surveillance existed. What this document was effectively doing was really describing in great creepy details how the surveillance was effectively deployed. So we're talking about people who were physically surveilled. So DWP officers were waiting by their doors, for example, to see if women were coming home at night and whether that meant that maybe they weren't actually single. That meant sometime talking to people's neighbors. That meant obtaining data from private companies, you know, anything from like PayPal to see what they buy online to airline companies to see if potentially people are traveling and maybe going on holiday, which is obviously a crime, a massive big crime if you're on benefits. And people's bingo clubs, uh, gym subscription, because, well, maybe if you're going to the gym, maybe you're not disabled after all. And getting CCTV footage also from supermarkets. There's a very sort of wide range of companies you could obtain information from, which was described in all 995 pages of the documents. So if you're on benefits, you kind of have to watch yourself at all times, unless you you do something that the DWP might misinterpret. Yeah, this is what's very concerning to me is that basically if you're on benefits, it most likely means that you're in a vulnerable situation yourself. And the idea that obtaining benefits puts you in a situation where you have every right to be afraid that the government is going to be spying on you. And and that that's the reality. It's like, yeah, potentially they will. And potentially they want you 
to conform to an idea that is built for themselves of what poverty looks like. You're at the mercy of people who probably didn't experience poverty themselves, most likely didn't, and have created for themselves an image of what being poor looks like, of what being a single mom looks like, of what being disabled looks like. And if you don't conform to this image, you might lose your benefits. It's so concerning because, I mean, for one thing, if you're a single parent and you go on a date with someone, and a DWP are waiting by your door and you come back with a man having been on a date or a woman having been on a date or anyone else. The idea that that is reasonable evidence to suggest that you're not a single parent, as if a single parent is the same thing as not being single. Like, just in terms of this one thing, yeah. if you're a single parent, it can mean, you know, being the sole source of income in your household, you're caring for your child on your own. But that's not the same thing as not dating. Like, mm-hmm. that's so wild that your benefits can be withdrawn because the DWP were waiting by your door and you happen to come back with a date. The, the web in which you have to, like, exist and move around and be concerned and look out for things is insane. And, like, what, the DWP are on the lookout in case you buy too nice a phone off of eBay because then maybe you're secretly not poor and you can never go on holiday and you could never treat your kids it's just horrific and the idea that they have of to be poor to be in need of access to a social safety net you you can never have anything nice you can never you know splurge a little bit on something because you can't be trusted is ridiculous and you see it again and again like in the UK there was this whole argument around kids lunches because the government didn't want to give people just money to buy food for their children or vouchers to buy food for their children they wanted them to have boxes of food so that they knew it would be food because they didn't trust people to provide for their kids and then the food boxes are a whole different thing because they weren't in and of themselves many of them were terrible so often the government don't trust people to do these things right and then they themselves don't do these things right Mm -hmm. it's horrific and ridiculous yeah and the problem is that it's not only that they build this image and that this is like ends up shaping their system and shaping how benefits are being delivered, but more broadly as a society, they are trying to shape our understanding of what benefit claimants and poor people are. So one aspect that I found also super concerning in the report that I didn't think was quite sufficiently reported on is that they have partnership with tabloid newspapers. And the idea is that every time they arrest a benefit claimant, they get in touch with journalists within those newspapers and editors-in-chief, and they tell them, look, we have the stories of this person we've arrested. And the reason they do this is that they say, well, we want to be seen as, you know, climbing down on benefits cheats. And all of this process is constructing this idea that like there are benefits cheats, you know, who aren't there sucking away money from the states, your taxpayers' money, and you're spending it in like lavish holidays and fancy phones that they're buying from eBay, whatever. And you know, thankfully the DWP is there to arrest them and to put those people in jail. And this is the narrative that they're essentially trying to push on society, but like the people who are claiming benefits or 
criminals waiting to be caught. And I mean, first of all, this is ridiculous when we're looking at like the amount of benefits that are being delivered by the British government. The idea that like you can live lavishly on those benefits, it's just, I mean, I don't know what fiction they're living in, but that's just not, <laughs> that's just not a reality. But also even in terms of figures that we know, we, we know that in many places there's more money that's being spent on trying to catch benefit claimants than the actual cost of benefit fraud. And I mean, obviously, the counter-argument to this is that, well, this is how things should be, because if we're not investing a lot of money in catching fraud, then there would be a lot more fraud. But I think, hopefully, this kind of narrative is is shifting a little bit. And basically, the, the cost of benefit fraud, and again, like, I want to add caveats around this because the DAWP also include mistakes, for example. But we know it's between three to five billion per year, depending on the year. And that's like the high numbers, basically. If you look at the cost of tax evasion, we're looking at 70 billion pounds. And there is nowhere near amount of effort put into surveilling white upper middle class people or or companies or CEOs of companies were putting the money of their company in like Singapore, for example. No one's requesting Jeff Bezos's eBay history. Exactly. So this is a government choice of like who are you actually trying to police in society and who are you actually trying to go after. And I like to think that actually, and maybe COVID is changing a little bit the lines on this, but I like to think that maybe things will be changing a little bit. And when we see countries like Spain, for example, that during the COVID crisis decided that actually they wanted to go for universal income and say, look, instead of trying to figure out who should be on the benefit, who shouldn't be on benefits, let's distribute benefits to absolutely everyone in the country. You don't have to sort of like think through who deserves what. You just give it to everyone. And you don't have to pay to work out who deserves what. One of the arguments for universal basic income is that the administrative costs are so much lower. You just need people's addresses in the bank account and you send them some money. You don't have to spend all the money looking for fraud. You don't have to spend all the money to do income assessments. And the consequences for losing access to benefits can be truly, truly horrific and these are just the ones that make you know big news i think the one that really sticks in my memory is a few years ago a man called errol graham he was about 57 he was a granddad he used to really like football he was cut off from his benefits and his body was found in his flat when the bailiffs broke down the door to kick him out of his flat for not paying rent and he'd starved to death he was four and a half stone when he was found he had no food in his flat. He had no gas, he had no electricity, and he had no food in his stomach because he had nothing to buy any of those things with because he'd lost access to his benefits. I think Errol Graham was one of the many who uh, hadn't gone to work capability assessment. So in the UK, if you're disabled for whatever reason, for mental health reasons or for physical reasons, you're kind of assessed as to whether you have the ability to go to work And these work capability assessments have pretty consistently been criticised for being humiliating, for being um, inaccurate and inadequate, a way of understanding whether people are 
you know, capable of working, whatever that means. Because if you if you go and you have a good day, and maybe some days your bad days, you know, you you can't walk or you you really struggle, and then on your good days you can. You're and you're assessed on a good day. It can make all the difference in terms of what you're assessed as being capable of having. And that's one of the problems with with DWP surveillance, right? Is that say say they request footage of you on a good day at the supermarket and they judge you based on that they don't see the whole range of of your life and your disability the human cost of the dwp's lack of empathy mistrust you know heavy surveillance and then misinterpreting or lack of understanding of what they see leads to just absolute devastation and ruin for the people caught on the wrong side of it and there are so many more cases like that and it's just horrific like you go after a company that's evading tax you go after a company that has a dodgy tax arrangement legal or not legal then the consequences are not going to be as horrific as when you go after a person in a vulnerable situation with severe mental health or physical health issues who has no other access to support it's just the human cost is is unimaginably horrific no and i i think it's like particularly failing people with mental health issues for example you mentioned the case of errol graham the one of the reason he didn't attempt those appointment was because he suffered from social phobia and basically we design systems that are made to to fail people we don't understand that for some people attending appointments having to deal with the system is just extremely triggering extremely difficult in and of itself and i mean obviously because of the nature of the research we just released we're focusing on like the aftermath i.e people who already are on benefits and are being surveilled for being on benefits but we have to remember that even just accessing benefits in the first place is an absolute maze it, it, it is extremely difficult it's a very invasive process and again as i said and i will say it again we're talking about people who are in vulnerable situations who may have mental health issues who may not necessarily have you know the complete and full understanding of the system and there's nothing here to be ashamed of because those systems are extremely complex and we expect people in vulnerable situations to be navigating through those administrative maze in order to obtain the money they need to to survive because as you say like at the end of the day as has been shown in the past couple of years where we've like seen multiple cases of death from people who had their benefits withdrawn it is a matter of life and death do we want to get into covert human intelligence sources yeah, covered human intelligence sources was something that caught our attention when we were going through this report because this is not something they're allowed to do. Covered human intelligence sources is essentially when, for example, they would ask, I don't know, let's say your neighbor to be able to, to, to spy on you and to report information. And that's not something they're allowed to do. It's essentially you, you would have to be basically the intelligence services to be able to do that sort of things and yet this is what's interesting is that in the guide they spend several pages describing how to handle information coming from covered human intelligence sources because hey if you magically have one arriving to you 
I, if for example, a neighbor spontaneously come and speak to you to report information, you know, this is not information they're going to be saying, no, actually, sorry, we can't take this back. This is like one of those cases where it's like, hey, you're not allowed to do this, but actually here is how to do this. So which kind of like really shows the system where there is very little safeguards and limits in place. You can't you can't ask people to be a covert human intelligence source. But if you trip over one in the street, mm-hmm. then here's how here's how that works. Yeah. That's basically the phrasing of the report. And these people aren't the police. They're not the police. They're not intelligence services. They are uh, not that it would necessarily be much better, frankly. But yeah, those people are employees, officers of the DWP. Not something that repad the law that's working on like surveillance, for example, would be legislating on. So we're kind of like a weird gray zone. Basically, yeah. Detailed and complicated surveillance with few safeguards is definitely one thing we always love to see it. And there is the algorithm angle to this, which is the other side of the report, because they have another system in place which relies on an algorithm. And this is what we're generally interested in, is how is this algorithm working? They're describing it as a a data matching system. So from that description, we can assume that this is not sort of very sophisticated AI. And all the more so if it's not very sophisticated AI, we want it to understand well, what categories of data are being used? What's the criterion used in this data matching? What data are you trying to match effectively? You know, one criterion could be like how much are people paying in rent? And if their rent is above 700 quid per month, then, you know, they would be flagged. I don't know if it's well, one of the measures they're using because the, the very point is that when we ask them for more details, on the algorithm, they refuse to disclose any. And their argument for refusing to disclose anything is that, well, if we tell you how this algorithm works, then we wouldn't be able to detect fraud anymore. Which, I mean, first of all, is bullshit. I'm sorry, because if your system relies on people not finding out how the system works, well, probably your system doesn't work very well in the first place. But also, we live in now in a society where people have been waking up to the importance of algorithm transparency. And we've seen this last year when everyone was affected by a very arbitrary algorithm used to readjust the grades of British students on A-levels. And we realized that this algorithm was essentially facilitating white privilege rich students and making life harder for students from poor background. And so when this was sort of exposed, when this emerged, people realized the importance that like, where if you're going to be using an algorithm that affects and transforms the life of people, the very least, the very least you can do is being absolutely completely transparent about what you can do with this algorithm. And so seeing the DWP being like, oh, no, absolutely not. We're not going to release anything about it because, you know, 
or a whole system is going to collapse should there be any information released about it is is completely ludicrous and completely at odds with the way our society is going. So the school's algorithm didn't look at each individual's history of attainment particularly. What it largely focused on was like, what school do you go to? What's the school's history of attainment? What are the class sizes that you're involved in? Which ultimately meant that people who went to private schools, you know, smaller class sizes and a high history of attainment because of the money that gets poured into them were significantly better off and some got higher results than their predicted grades. The algorithm kind of bumped them up. Whereas students who went to schools that have broadly done worse in funding, have bigger class sizes, have had a worse history of attainment, most of their predicted grades got bumped down. So if you were, you know, a student who worked extremely hard, who predicted grades were really good for the school that you were in, in all likelihood, the algorithm went, yeah, but we don't, we don't believe that you could really get those predicted grades. We don't believe you or your teachers we think that because of the school that you're in because of the classes that you're in really you know you're a b student not an a student and i think other than the kind of very poor system that the algorithm went to to ultimately be used the other thing that really became obvious is that the things that you plug into algorithms like these is vital i think there was an algorithm that police were using to determine if people should be let out on bail or not that included things like people's postcode and your postcode broadly can be a real indicator of like income social economic status all these kind of things and so the algorithm ultimately discriminated against people who were from a particular ethnic background who were of a particular social economic status rather than genuinely showing who was or wasn't at a higher risk of i guess jumping bail or reoffending, and Unless people audit these algorithms, there's no guarantee that it's not discriminating in these ways. Like this isn't, you know, an algorithm that decides if you do or don't get a lollipop. It's an algorithm that decides in some cases very literally, do you live, do you die, do you spend the next year of your life in kind of administrative purgatory? The consequences are so horrific that I think in a democratic, reasonable, just society, to say, oh, well, we're not going to show you the algorithm and prove that it doesn't discriminate against any particular groups because then there might be a little bit more benefit fraud is horrific. It's like if, if the consequences are slightly more benefit forward or people dying, I think people in general would say, let's not have people dying. Yeah. Let's, let's let benefits do its job, which is to stop people dying because they have no money. I think there is an easy way that governments and not just the UK have been escaping talking about their use of algorithm is to say, oh, but, you know, at the end of the day, the decisions to suspend benefits or, you know, to sign people on bail or whatever is made by a human being. It's not made by the algorithm. But here we have a clear case of like what the algorithm decides if a person is going to be investigated or not. And that's already a hell of a decision to be made that an algorithm is deciding if someone's going to end up with like, a person like waiting by their door, spying on them to see if they're coming home alone at night or with other people. Like that's already a hell of a thing we that we are trusting algorithm with. And not to even talk about what you're saying, which is ultimately the reality of getting your benefit withdrawn is is a question of life and death. And it, this is also in a context where 
in the financial reports, the DWP is talking and making big noise about how they're investing the money that's essentially thrown at them on developing fancy new AI to do exactly this, to detect benefit fraud. And we've been trying to ask them about this new system. And at the moment, it looks like the system is going nowhere, which, you know, on the one hand, you know, is reassuring because we don't necessarily want fancy AI to be used. But actually, this just kind of like contributes to the whole problem with the lack of transparency is that we are throwing money at systems that we're not sure if they're actually going to lead to anything. Maybe nothing's going to come out of it. Well, and if something does come out of it, if those systems are being tried and tested, you're tested with people's data. And that's the big sort of like piece of the puzzle we are missing is that uh, is it this transparency element, the, the role of the, the public and civil society in scrutinizing the systems that are being developed? If we can't obtain transparency for the very simple algorithm they're using at the moment, how are we going to expect transparency when they eventually use uh, very sort of like much more advanced artificial intelligence, machine learning system, which we know tend to become black boxes very quickly and become very difficult to audit. But if the very first step with at the sort of like very basic stage right now, we can't even obtain transparency at the stage. This is something that should concern us enormously. And we should really be asking the question, well, does the DWP deserve to have money thrown at them to build more complex AI systems to detect fraud when they can't commit to transparency on the very basic system they're currently using. I was thinking about what you were saying about the DWPs constantly tipping off tabloids and sending stories mm-hmm. to tabloids about benefits fraud. I found an old survey by Ipsos Mori, which admittedly is like 2013, so quite old now. But the amount of money that people believe is fraudulently claimed is wildly outsized. Like it's mm. wildly outsized. The Ipsos Mori found it was £24 out of every £100 spent on benefits. And it was actually like a pound. And the reason that money gets thrown at the DWP, the reason they kind of get away with this stuff is they've built this own narrative for themselves that it's a real significant, huge problem in the benefit system. And it's a massively outsized <laughs> picture of what it actually is, which is very little. and individual people are the the people that end up suffering for it both like at the hands of the dwp but also in general because they're stigmatizing being like availing yourself of the system the social safety net that exists for this purpose like it's there for this it's not there to not be claimed it's just dumb and frustrating and this is the topic i think of all the topics we work on this is the one that makes me want to scream the most because it seems so obviously you know horrendous it's not a technical argument you don't have to understand all that much in terms of things that are complicated no one's having to sit down and explain how like a privacy invasive technical system works which some of our work is and is also very frustrating but like this is feels like the one that is the clearest easiest to understand and yet it's still happening (laughs) Yeah, I think on a lot of the, the issues we work on, there is, first of all, there is a long-term effect and there's also like a hypothetical, you know, risk where, which we should still be very concerned about, but like, oh, if companies does X and Y, 
you know, this could cause a risk, a threat to democracy, which is obviously something we should be like concerned about. But here we are in a case of like, this algorithm is being used. And if this algorithm makes this decision, someone cannot eat. And it's not like, you know, in, in a hypothetical, it's like today, it's happening today. It's happening on a daily basis that people get their benefits suspended. So I think, yeah, it, it's something that's extremely grounded in daily realities. It's everyone. We all know someone who's claiming benefits. I think what's depressing is I suspect a lot of people in government don't know anyone who's claiming benefits. So if you're an MP you are in the UK, you have like sessions where the public can come to you and ask for help. And benefits is one of the things they can come to their MP and ask about. And it's one of the things you can come to your MP and ask about if you're if you're struggling with benefits. But I think a lot of MPs and a lot of people that make these decisions don't know anyone on benefits. And that's what part of the reason and part of the problem. You could read the report on our website. It's right there on our website. <laughs> we'll put the link in the description. Shedding light on the DWP part one and part two. Nice. And yeah, so either thank you very much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. And thank you for the revelations even if they are deeply depressing. So here at PI, and in that particular conversation with either, we tend to get quite focused in on the places we can make the most change which are things like policy but we didn't want to let the human cost of some of these go without a deeper look so we've pulled together some of the stories of people who've died because the DWP stopped their benefits or an error has created problems for their benefits some of these stories are quite disturbing the first came out in January 2020 and it was a national news story which revealed that 5,000 people had died before they could be reimbursed for underpayments from their government benefits. They had been transferred from an older benefit to a a newer version of the benefit, and there had been an error, and 5,000 ill and disabled people died before ever receiving the money that they owed. It was quite a lot of money. Uh, Some people missed out on around two grand and whilst I don't think anyone ever ultimately drew a direct line between their deaths and the loss of this money it certainly can't have helped. A researcher from Disability Rights told The Guardian that 5,000 people were denied the proper support to live independently before they died is scandalous as is the 112,000 people who had to wait years for these errors to be corrected. And they're not the only ones. In 2017, a woman called Jodie Whiting took her own life after the Department of Work and Pensions had her benefits stopped. The DWP continued to phone her and write to her even after she died. An independent investigation found that the DWP had failed multiple times to follow its own safeguarding rules leading up to her death. They'd stopped her 
benefits payments after she missed a work capability assessment, which is the assessment that Eva and I talked about, which tries to decide if you're fit to work or not, if you're capable of working. One woman called Philippa Day, who was only 27, took an overdose of insulin in August 2019 and fell into a coma until she died after she had her weekly benefits payments reduced from £228 to just £60. She was the mother of really very young children who were about four when she died from suicide. (sighs) David Clapson was diabetic and on the amount of benefits he received, he couldn't afford to he couldn't afford to keep his electricity on. David Clapson was diabetic and he kept his insulin in the fridge. But without electricity and without a working fridge, he wasn't able to keep his insulin cold and he died from diabetic ketoacidosis, which is caused by a severe lack of insulin. There are many more stories along those lines. I mean, this might get cut. Because we normally, you know, we try and have a little fun on the podcast. We try and, you know, have a chat, have a laugh, introduce you to these issues in a kind of accessible way. You know, we want to say hi and we want to lead you through what are really complicated issues in the most accessible way possible that makes them as fun as possible. But the consequences of policies like the DWPs, which fails and puts up as many barriers to people and fails to respect the fundamental dignity of people on benefits can have dramatic and horrific consequences. I don't want I don't want to say they're tragic because tragic implies that there was a lack of agency, which isn't true. Policies like the almost thousand pages that Eva read through aren't accidental. So we just wanted to really focus in on the human cost of these decisions. All of those people we mentioned, David Clapson, Jodie Whiting, all of them, they all had families that loved them. They all left people behind, and that can't be undone. Thanks for listening. You can support PI and make sure we can keep working on issues like these at support.privacyinternational.org. You can like and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use. It's also available at privacyinternational.org, where we try and add links and other useful information. If you're facing problems accessing benefits, then the best place to find out more information or to talk to someone is Citizens Advice, which you can find at citizensadvice.org.uk. Music, courtesy of Sepia. This podcast was produced by Max Bunnell for Privacy International.